Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Gig Money Podcast. We talk with musicians about the side hustles that they use to fund their musical ambitions. I am Cody. And I'm Andrew. And today we're talking about the expectations that music goers have on the performances that they're going to see. Concert performances, that is what we were talking about today. So. So, so tell me about the show last night. How was the show? The show was good. The show was loud. Okay, so I learned some very important things um, last night. And it was uh, certain things that I had been aware of for a while, but seeing them in practice was a little bit different. Because apparently on certain tour packages, and probably a lot more common than I am aware of, and most people are probably aware of, the headliners have stipulations in place that any of the openers are only allowed to use the PA up to a percentage of its capabilities. So the openers last night were only allowed to use 50% of the subs. And that was part of the stipulation put on the contract by the headliner. So you're sitting there and you're watching a show. And of course you're like, "Eh, you know, this sounds pretty good. These guys are putting on a good show. And then all of a sudden the headliner comes on and you can hear the bass twice as strong and that makes them sound better. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, they're using the subs to its full capability and uh, yeah, it's, it's just another thing to prevent the opening bands from, annihilating the headliners and I think it comes along with certain headliners that are not really too certain about their position in the world. So, you know, they, they don't feel like they can put on an adequate enough show to counteract, you know, whatever opening band they might have on tour with them. They just, they can't outperform everybody, but that's not the point. Is it, are you bringing out openers I mean, mean, what's the reason there? Just to kill time? Because if you're doing that, then you're doing it wrong. Right. If you're trying to bring your fans closer to different music that you appreciate, then that's awesome. And you select the openers, and I've seen a lot of that happen too, and that's just amazing. You know, you're just like picking your successors, essentially, the people who are going to rise up and be in your position later on. Yeah, exactly. And you're, I, uh, I was listening to um, Matt Hafey on his uh, radio program. He was, he said the tide rises all ships. So if you rise the tide, then all of the ships come up and that means all of the bands come up. If you are working to bring the tide up. So why wouldn't you want to do that? Because that helps you. That helps everybody. Right. But if you're trying to keep everybody else down and you're trying to keep the subwoofers at 50% of what you actually get, then that's not promoting anything other than yourself. And I feel like that resonates with a lot of people. Yeah. it's You know, I love it when we perform, when bands perform with other bands And you find new bands that are just fantastic. To me, I think that's incredible. I mean, sure. Have I played with bands before that have been better than my band? Yeah, I have. And did it bother me? 
No, not really. Not at all. You know, if people like that band so much, that's great. Maybe they'll know that we bring good bands when we go <laughs> play shows. <laughs> so more people show up. I don't know. But I've always thought that it was kind of a joint venture. Is everybody yeah. support each other? Yeah, it, it totally is. And I just, I think uh, at, at a certain point, you can kind of understand why if a lot of tickets are sold, a lot of people come out to a show to see the headliner, which, you know, is most often the case. They, that's why they right. are the headliner. They sell the most tickets. Um, that they want it to be great. They want that experience for everybody that bought a ticket to be great. And, right. you know, the the way in which they're doing it is providing a contrast between themselves and the opening bands by making themselves sound louder, which scientifically it, it, a lot of people like compute that as sounding better, like louder sounds better. Yeah. Especially in a hard rock metal genre. Right. You know, it's just more and it's right. better. And that makes, that makes sense to me. If people are buying tickets to see the headlining band, then the headlining band needs to bring it. Right. But the way it was uh, framed to me last night is that in order to do that, the headlining band was stifling the opening bands. And I don't think that's the way to go about it. No, I, I, I truly think that that's just a very, very self-involved way of, putting on a show and I think that you are much better served by making everybody sound great and making it an incredible experience from every single aspect. Now I did have a band that, uh, I didn't really have a whole lot of say for sure. I was the vocalist for the band and everybody kind of thinks that the vocalist has all the say, right? Like, like they're the leader. Well, I wasn't the leader of the band. I was just the guy that was there who sang. Um, and the drummer that we had at the time had a really awesome sound system. It was like something you would see at um, any other stage that was a big stage, right? It had those really cool uh, speakers that kind of came down at an angle like this. All of them, there was like four or five of them. And then a couple of little towers and stuff. And I mean, it was several thousand dollars worth of equipment. And uh, the guy had set it up to make us sound really, really good. But when the other bands played, he'd walk over there and press a button that would turn everything flat. So all the equalizing and everything was completely off. And it, was, it, would, it would make the other bands not sound as good. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I had no control over that. Yep, that's that's the thing in uh, today's day and age, and even you know when you're a smaller or even medium level touring band, you have to have somebody who is not on stage to advocate for you. In being that you know, if you have somebody who is running sound for you, which I it's ideal. It's hard to bring like that many people on tour if you can't pay everybody, right? And you definitely want to do that because, you know, these people are working hard and doing what they're doing. And, you know, your front of house guys are worth their weight in gold if they're doing what they need to do. Yes. So, you know, for, for a small level band to bring an extra body on their tiny little bus, which may have four or five bunks or it might be a van 
that has, you know, four benches, you know, it's, it's very difficult to do. And, you know, in addition to pay them to make sure that it's worth their time and effort. But yeah. having that kind of thing, and when you roll into a show and the headliner has got this, you know, they've got control over everything. If you at least have somebody who can run the soundboard and make sure that your band sounds good, maybe if this person can run lights as well, you know, you get a little bit higher up, you can have one guy for each. So make sure you have a really good sound guy really good front of house and a really good lighting director. And it's hard to do that. It's hard to maintain that. It's hard to, because if you don't have anything to pay them other than what merch sales, and if venues are taking a percentage of that, then that's even less that you have at the end of the day, it's just impossible. So like if you're the opening band on tour and you sound crap every single night because you didn't have the money to bring somebody to make you sound good, then, you know, it's, true, true. it's just crazy. It's really crazy how that works. And, yeah, like I said, it was very eye-opening last night to see a lot of that. And it's not necessarily anything that I wasn't aware of because I had experienced a lot of that and seen a lot of that um, in the past, but it definitely made itself evident from you know, a crowd perspective, just me being on the outside looking in and just noticing all of these different things. So, yeah. I was at a a concert and I think it was Attila. Um, But I was back by where they had an opening where they had the soundboard and the light board, right? And so there was a guy back there doing his thing. And I kept watching this guy just like pushing all these buttons and doing all this other kind of stuff. And I noticed what he was doing was he was controlling lights that were on the stage and on the set. And I'm like, wow, like you really do that all by hand. Kind of a, I I waited until of course it was like in between bands. And I was like, Hey, are you actually, are you manually doing lights? And he's like, yeah. I was like, wow. I'm like, so you must know every single song really well. And he's like, yeah, for three bands. He's like, I have, I do the lights for all three bands. And I'm just like, wow, like that, that is intense. And he was doing a really good job. You know, it was like when the double bass was going, it was all flashing lights and all types of things. And I was just like, man, that that's wild. I thought, I thought everybody programmed that stuff. Yeah. But the thing is you roll into different venues every single night with different, uh, different sound systems and different lighting structures. And you have to just learn it and go on the fly and figure it out. And those guys, they are the unsung heroes of the touring world. And I, yeah, that's another thing that became really, really clear to me last night was uh, there was uh, one of the the opening bands. um, As far as I understood, they were touring as part of the tour package and they had only brought a very, very limited crew. And, you know, the upper level bands will bring a tour manager, uh, an LD lighting director and, okay. you know, a front of house, somebody who's running the soundboard. You also have like a handful of crew guys backstage who help load on and off. And, you know, if you drop a stick or, uh, you know, your water bottle spills over, you know, something crazy like that happens, your 
wireless pack starts cutting in and out, then there's somebody back there who can like help you assess that situation so you don't have to do it yourself. But smaller overbands, they don't have all of that. And I no. saw last night one guy who was taking care of their merch table, who was taking care of their load on and off stage, and who was taking care of a variety of different things backstage and front of house. And he was by far the hardest working person of the entire night. Mm -hmm. And I just grew so much respect because nobody cares about him. He's not on stage. Nobody knows his nope. name, but he's doing nope. everything. And, you know, I, I, I made sure to stop by the merch table and leave him a, a, a decent tip, just understanding that he is killing it, you know. He is making sure that everything is running smoothly for this band while they focus on the music, they focus on their performance, what have you. And those guys are all backstage. Nobody really knows about them, but they deserve nope. praise. Yes. The thing about COVID, the thing about quarantine where touring essentially stopped is these guys were out of jobs just the same as the musicians. But the musicians yes. were able to sit at home and work on music and then, you know, maybe remotely send different tracks and stuff and like continue writing while these guys are sitting at home, the guys that take care of everything on tour, what are they doing? Yeah. So, you know, to be honest, I would actually like to reach out to him specifically and ask him to be a guest and see. That'd be really cool. I, I, I imagine he uh, is a musician in his spare time because, you know, a lot of people who do crew work are, but I just can't imagine all of the insight that he has into everything because he was just one of the hardest working people I've ever seen. Yeah. And he was just background to everything yeah. else that was going on. It was really awesome. So yeah, I'm going to reach out to him. I'm going to, I'm going to find him and reach out to him. You're going to find him. You're going to track him down. I'm going to find him. I'll track him down. Mm -hmm. I know the tour dates. <laughs> How did your whole mullet for my Valentine thing go yesterday? That was uh, it's a really good song. I dig it, it is a good song. You and I can't take credit for the song. It is a really good song. It's you and Miles. Yes. Right. Yes. And then did you do all the uh, instruments? Yes, I did. So the story behind that, I'm not sure if you remember. You probably do, but it was uh, Saul, the band Saul. Mm -hmm. Back in 2013 or 2014, I believe. So it's been almost 10 years, if not 10 years. Yeah. And they were just a small, you know, kind of independent band at the time. And they were coming through Salt Lake City and Yancey, who I would like to have on the podcast as well to talk about different things. He, we uh, love Yancey. Absolutely. Best, best guy. And we, we talked a lot about him. But, uh, he, uh, Yancey made sure that they had a show in Salt Lake City and he was doing everything that he could to make sure that it was a profitable show and there was a good crowd there and, you know, just going out of his way to take care of a band that was smaller, but, you know, touring and trying to cut their teeth and make a name for themselves in the industry. And, uh, so Parish Lane, we agreed to do the show because we were just really excited about, you know, this, this band and what they were doing and their sound and everything that was going on there. So we wanted to do the show with them and we wanted to bring as many people as possible 
to, you know, bring a lot more awareness to what these guys were doing. The problem was the very following weekend, we had already booked a show. We didn't want to detract from that show. We didn't want to oversaturate. We didn't want to, you know, say, hey, you should come to this show instead of that show because this show is cool and that show is not and blah, blah, blah. We wanted to bring people out to both of the shows and we decided we would do that so that they could have a different experience. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the way that we worked out that we would make that a thing is that with the Saul show, we learned a set full of cover songs, mostly Bullet for My Valentine. And then at the show, we all donned the most terrible 80s hair pieces and crazy like clothing and whatnot. And we marketed ourselves as mullet for my Valentine. Yeah, we were, we were just trying really, really hard to get people out to that show. And we thought that would be a fun, like interesting, like mixing things up kind of way to bring people out to uh, a different experience for one night. And then you can catch the regular parish lane show the next weekend and, you know, make it an event and make sure these guys got the um, exposure that they deserved. Yeah, so that was being exposed. <laughs> there's nothing more fun than exposing yourself or being exactly. exposed by others. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Dicks. Anyways, <laughs> so um, yeah, that uh, that you know it went moderately well. I mean, it was a it was a good turnout. We had a definitely. A uh, good time and learned a lot from those guys just watching them perform and seeing their stage like kind of production and how they presented themselves all the way down to their merch table, which, you know, w- was lit up from the inside and you could see everything and it was just the coolest thing. And I hadn't seen that before and it inspired me to kind of do similar things because it just kind of drew people to it. You could see everything that was on sale. You could see various different things. It was lit up in the middle of a dark venue and just kind of honed in on that. Like, what's this? This is cool. And I I definitely gained a lot from that experience. But that was it. Like, that was the one thing that Mullet for My Valentine did at the time. And I was just thinking about it. As COVID struck... And like, you know what? I really want to do a cover song. And I decided out of all of the songs that I wanted to do, I wanted to do Bullet for My Valentine. This yeah. is something that I hadn't done in a while. It had been seven years since that show. Yeah. And then I just, the wheels got turning like, oh, I still have a mullet. I still have the mullet that I wore for this particular show. You know, I started recording that and working on that, and um, it it never really went anywhere right away. And then, you know, I started working on other, uh, like, my original music, which turned into Grey March. And I finally found Miles, was able to do vocals on this. That was the only thing that was missing. I had all of the instruments I had all the lyrics, I had all the vocal melodies and everything, but I'm a terrible, terrible singer. And I couldn't find anybody who was able to like make that come to life. And then Miles, you know, he's, he was in Saul. He does production work on the side and he does everything. Like he does all of the instrumentation, drums, bass, guitars, vocals. He's awesome. 
and he put a post out there, and I was like, I'm going to try him out. And so all the yep. Grey Marsh stuff ended up with Miles being the vocalist because he just killed it. He's he's the guy. Like he he's dependable. He's reliable. He um, just absolutely comes out with amazing, amazing production with everything that he does. So I know that he seems like a really nice guy too. He is the nicest guy. He is so cool to hang out with. And, you know, we did the podcast with him and that was, that was him. He he didn't put on any airs or anything like that. That's, that's just miles. And it was amazing to hang out with him. He's hardworking. He, you know, he really like puts himself into something, but at the same time, he has a good sense of humor. And he doesn't yeah. take himself too seriously. So when I approached him about doing Bullet for My Valentine, he was like, yeah, man, that sounds like a lot of fun. Let's do it. You know, I'll do the vocals. I'll do a video. And I'm like, hey, do you have a mullet wig? He's <laughs> like, well, no. Uh, I have a cowboy hat, but that's not the same thing. I said, I'll send you one. So next day, he had that blonde mullet wig. And, nice. uh, you know, and then we, uh, continued working on it from there and I, uh, took all of the tracks. I mixed and mastered everything myself and it turned out really good. I am it super proud really of good. the way that turned out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then, it's a really good song. you know, put the video together myself and it was all a lot of fun and it's goofy and stupid and whatever. I don't care if people don't like it oh. or if they do, that's great too, but. Well, I hope you intend on putting a link to your song in this video. I will. So that other people I'll put a, I'll put a too. link to it. I'll That's put a, a good idea. To mullet for my Valentine. Riot. It'll be a yes. riot. Yes. Total riot. I had some other ideas. There's another cover song that I've been working on, which is a little bit different, which features Miles, but he is doing mostly backup vocals and main vocals are provided by friend Todd's brother, Zach, who is a very phenomenal, uh, among many other things, country artist. Yeah. So that should be interesting. And a great podcaster. He is a great podcaster. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I will put a link to Zach's podcast uh, in this episode as well, because it's just, it's awesome. That's what I listen to when I'm working. And I re-listen to all of the episodes when I go through whatever's current and just go back to whatever, because they're just very, very entertaining and very fun to listen to. And they cover some pretty interesting topics, you know, true crime and aliens and cryptids and strange stuff and scary stuff. And it's just always interesting things. Always. So you're telling a story about how, um, Saul had a cabinet that was lit, right? It was so lit. And, or, or their their uh, merch table was all lit up, right? So it just yes. reminded me of a joke. So this this moth, right, is is uh, walking down the street, and then uh, he sees this doctor's office. You know, it's a podiatry office. And he goes in and he sits down, and the doctor's like, "Well, how can I help you?" And he says, "I don't know, doc. I'm yeah, having a lot of problems with my wife. You know, she's just not happy anymore. I just I don't know what to do to fill the void that she's missing. You know, and I don't even want to get in to, you know, me and my daughter's relationship. Just like she's a whole different person. I just don't know how to deal with her. I have no idea, you know, what she likes anymore. She's just grown up so much. And then my son, it's like my son is just, he's hot and he's cold and 
you don't know whether he likes you, whether he doesn't like you. And he's like, I just, I don't know what I'm doing here. You know, and then I got this brother who just got thrown in jail. And he says, and I can't even find my other brother. I have no idea where he's gone. So I don't know, doc, this is just, I got all these problems. And the That's doctor looks rough. at him and says, you know, this is a podiatry office, right? And he says, yeah. And he says, why'd you come here? He says, the light was on. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> man, I should be disappointed by the lack of payoff with all of the backstory <laughs> with that. But <laughs> so great. Uh, so, uh, whenever I go to concerts or sometimes big events, it seems like there's somebody around me that usually ends up needing protection. There always seems to be situations like that. I was at a corn concert and we were right up front and I was with, um, our former drummer, David, and, uh, we're having a really good time. And there's a guy to the side of me and he's got one leg. He's on crutches, right? Now we're at the front, like we're on the gate, we're on the barrier which is a hard place to be sometimes because when the crowd starts moving and stuff, the people against the barriers are the ones who end up having to take the brunt of all of the force. Right. So and you have nowhere to go. You're squished <clears throat> up against the barricade. <clears throat> that happens. Exactly. My, a very, very first concert. So yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a hard place to be. Like you said, it is. So, so we're standing there and his girlfriend, like, comes over to me and she's all, Hey, so I know that things are probably going to get a little crazy. This is where my husband wants to be. No. Yeah. It was his, her husband. Yeah. This is where my husband wants to be. And she says, um, he's a war veteran. He lost his leg in Iraq. And he says, she says, can you please help me? Should he fall? Will you help pick him up? And I was like, Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So during this period of time, I actually had my arm, kind of around his arm. So as the crowd is like bumping into us and moving us side to side and doing all types of different things, he could keep his balance. And it wasn't until the encore when Corn came out and played a few of their the encore songs that he finally, he did, he got knocked over. And so I had to help pick him up and a few other guys behind me ended up helping me pick him up. I didn't think he was going to be that heavy, but I don't know if I've ever picked up a one-legged man before. That's one thing that I can say is that, uh, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of crowds, like I have no idea what it's like for any other genre of music, but if you're going to a metal concert or a rock concert or anything like that, and things get wild in the crowd, somebody falls down, there's always somebody there to pick them right back up. Always. And it's just the sense of community there is so amazing. And I imagine that's why most people go to concerts is because you get that experience and you share it with everybody. And if you fall down, somebody's going to be there to pick you up and get right back onto, you know, rocking out. And that's, that's, that's the coolest thing. I don't think that happens in a lot of other, you know, genres. I don't imagine somebody falling down at a Taylor Swift concert is going to be picked back up. They're probably going to be trampled to fucking death so that Truth. the person behind them can get six inches closer to Taylor Swift. And it's just, yes, it's, it's a little sad to be honest. Everybody wants to get six inches closer to Taylor Swift. 
I would rather be one step closer to the edge at a Lincoln Park concert. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was saying earlier, my first ever concert, I was right up against the barricade, getting squished against it, and I was like 13 at the time, and I was there to see Metallica, and I had saved up the eighty dollars in order to get a ticket to Metallica. And I was so mm-hmm. excited about it. And Godsmack was opening. And Godsmack was awesome. And mm-hmm. you know, they had the full center stage kind of set up and two different drum kits. And they had that whole interlude in the middle where they were like dueling drums and it was it was awesome. Um got the drum battle going on. You know, it was one of those yeah. things, but I was like 13 year old and I was right up against the barricade and people were pressing right into me and I was like squished the whole time. The security guard was standing on the other side of the barricade right in front of me and he checked on me every five yeah. minutes. Are you okay? You still good? You need water? You good? You anything? I'm like, man, this is, this is the best moment of my life. <laughs> As I'm being like pressed up against the barricade and squished into oblivion you know it was a very depressing experience yeah (laughs) but not 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 depressing at all it was amazing (laughs) have you ever seen a show or been to a show where you listen to somebody went yeah i'm not that much of a fan anymore well yeah godsmack (laughs) i saw them recently (laughs) and you know that's that's part of it but there was uh, just this whole um kind of aesthetic that they had where even in the middle of the set, Sully was saying, we don't play with any backing tracks and we don't have any in-ear monitors and we just go raw and blah, 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 as though they were talking shit on pretty much every single other band band. that played that (laughs) day. And I was like, all right, I mean, that's cool. Like 20 years ago when you guys were coming up and it's cool now that you guys are still like doing your thing. But at the same time, you know, what's what's wrong with having backing tracks? What's wrong with having a metronome in your ear so that everybody is right. on point at all times? Like, you can be really, really tight as a band, and that's cool. At the same time, if you want added extra elements in there, if you want a full symphony orchestra, like, unless you're Metallica, you can't afford to bring <laughs> that many people on tour with you. So right. how about you just have some very well orchestrated backing tracks and just have a metronome in time that you can keep on top of those tracks. I mean, it's music, right? People, people are coming to experience your performance of the music. That doesn't mean you need to perform every single note, every single sound that happens in the recording. You know, it's just, it, it left a bad taste in my mouth a little bit. You know, I respect where they were coming from with that, but, at the same time, there's s- countless bands that night that took what they were saying. We, you know, we don't play with backing tracks or click tracks or blah, 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 blah. And just blew that out of the water. It was, you know, I that was m- my first time seeing Death Clock live. And I don't know if you're oh, okay. familiar with Death Clock. Yeah. But, you know, they're the band from Metalocalypse and it's... Uh, fronted by Brandon Small and it has uh, Todd's good friend, Neely Brosh, on guitar. The one who borrowed Todd's amplifier the one time opening up. Uh, no, 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 just playing at Kamikaze's 
um, in the Iron Maidens. So she is okay, an amazing, okay. amazing guitar player. And Todd was like honored that he was able to essentially rent out his gear so that she could, you know, play lead guitar for all of these Iron Maiden songs at Kamikaze's. Yeah. So, you know, just an amazing band. And then they have the backdrop of all of the Metalocalypse clips in the background as they're playing these songs, performing them live. Like, how would you do that? If you were just a really tight band, you wouldn't do that. Right. It just, it just doesn't work that way. It wouldn't sync up. It wouldn't be the same experience. Like you, you say like, I can't have click tracks in my music. I can't have backing tracks in my music. And then you have like a whole bunch of video effects and, you know, pyrotechnics and bullshit like that. How does that work? You know, unless you've got somebody there, like, like I was saying with the Attila thing, Mm-hmm. Unless you got somebody back there pushing buttons yeah. that's familiar with every single song, you know, that's, that's, that's hard to do. Yeah. And, and you can automate you could, that now. Yeah. And if you could afford to have a person pushing all of those buttons and save you the effort of having a click track, <clears throat> then of course that would be fantastic. You know, it's so much better having an actual person behind the soundboard, behind the light board, whatever right. to control everything and essentially be a silent member of the band that's contributing yes. to the show. But not a lot of people can afford that, especially in this day and age, you know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. you know, the guys who do jump into those positions and fulfill the merch guy, whoever's driving, um, you know, front of house lighting crew backstage, all of those different things are definitely worth their weight in goals. But Affording that is a completely different thing. Yeah. Taylor Swift it's, can do it, but we can't. Yeah. Yeah. And ev- everybody wants to be six inches closer to Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I went and saw um, a band recently that was probably the crux of that entire situation, which was falling in reverse. Right. So falling in reverse came. There were some people there who were just talking some mad shit about falling in reverse. Oh yeah, people are paying money to come and watch, you know, a lip syncing, you know, all this, the garbage that's been spread around all over the internet by, let's just admit they're just haters, right? Mm -hmm. People who don't know exactly what they're talking about. They're just regurgitating the garbage that they've uh, been fed. Um, And then Falling Reverse came out and just nailed it. And I mean, every single musician in that band was incredible. It's just like, okay, this is not, you know, them doing karaoke. They're playing everything, but everything also has, it's got these bass drops in there. It's got different sounds that are necessary for the band that, you know, obviously unless there was somebody back there playing them on like keyboard or something, then it couldn't happen. And obviously they're synced to the visuals that's playing in the background. All that stuff takes um, a laptop, you know, you can't have somebody back there doing that, like popping in the VHS tape. I know they don't use VHS <laughs> tapes, but, and then projecting it on the wall, you know, so that it's in time with everything. And I mean, it's a whole production, you know, everybody, they've, they've got a whole thing they do. Um, Cause let's face it. People just aren't happy anymore with just hearing music. I think everybody's just so ADD lately that you've got to be appealed visually. You got to be appealed sonically. You've got to have all these different elements coming in together to keep your focus. 
to mm. really enjoy something and you're just like, wow, this is great. If you go and listen to a band who's great as they're playing, that's awesome. But guaranteed they got lights flashing around them. Yeah. See, the, the problem is most people don't even recognize it. Um, they just, they, they kind of get this uh, impression like that was a bad show. They just didn't put on a good show. I don't know why. Yeah. And a lot of the times the problem is something that they can't even pinpoint. They don't know. No. It's lights. It's not always lights, but a lot of the time, if you just have like white lights on you while you're playing and nothing is happening, that's boring as hell. And watching a band play, it's like, oh man, they're trying their best, but they suck. But yeah. if they had the lighting production that, you know, the headliner would have, that band would totally blow you away and you would be a fan immediately just based on lights. None yeah. of their performance changes, none of their music changes, none of their sound changes, anything like that. It's just lighting, you know, and it brings so much yeah. energy and people have no idea. Yeah. They just show up, expect to be entertained and if they are, great. If they're not, then your band's done. <laughs> and like you said, yeah. falling in reverse is the exact opposite of that spectrum where everything is pretty much controlled from that, that one service. There's so many different things happening at the same time and they're all perfectly quantized in time with the music, with the visuals, with everything that's happening. And, you know, you can do that with people, but it would take an army of people to do the things that one computer could do. And, you know, and at that point, like everything that they're doing visually with lighting, everything is almost it, it should be secondary to them just performing the music. But people don't think about it that way. They think about it in terms oh. of they're just fluffing everything with you know, all of this computerized stuff and it just, it, it, it lessens the experience for some people and enhances the experience for everybody else who's open to it. Right. What's well, like with uh, Avenged Sevenfold when they were playing, they had these cool like flame silhouettes around them up on um, the, the, the screens. And, you know, that's a big part of the production as well as these gigantic screens that the bands have to the sides of them to behind them, you know, those aren't controlled by a person back there popping in the VHS. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying VHS because I think it's hilarious, but um, Betamax. yeah, somebody's got some <laughs> Betamax <laughs> back there with the slideshow clicker. <laughs> click, click, click. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but those, you know, that, that just adds a really cool element. I remember watching that at first and I'm going, am I really seeing what I'm seeing? Is that a, a person? Like, it just looks kind of like fuzz to me. And then all of a sudden you start seeing this silhouette and you're like, Oh, that's the guitar player. Oh, that's, you know, the singer. Oh, that's that. And it just adds a whole cool element to it. Mm -hmm. That's not controlled by a person, you know, that's a digital or that. Yeah. That's a, a visual effect of some sort and that's gotta be controlled by a computer. So a lot of people have the wrong opinion or the wrong information about what a backing track actually is. Mm -hmm. And I don't it think a lot of people understand what happens with um, the majority of bands who are out there playing, because I mean, let's be honest. Amateurs have set lists, right? You got your set list of things 
But when you're in a professional kind of a band, you know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and next because there's a flow. Mm-hmm. And I bet you there's a computer generated something in the background giving you a click, giving you a prompt. It's like, okay, the song is about to start. Because songs that don't that just start up, you don't, you know, turn around to your band like you would in a practice and be like, okay, one, two, three, four, go, right? You know, it's it's there's there's something there happening. It's what you're not hearing that um is different. Yeah. And a lot of artists actually play on that. They they play on um the idea that they have, you know, the entire plan in their earpiece you know yeah guiding them and the audience doesn't hear any of that and it makes their transitions into different songs into different parts of their performance seamless Mm -hmm. because there's nothing more awkward than when a band stops playing and just kind of looks at each other and waits for the next song to start and right there's like no you're nothing there's like very very obvious seams there and it draws people away from the actual performance and, you know, causes them to question the professionality of the band itself because you're watching that. Like, do these guys know what they're doing? Like, is their first time (laughs) performing on stage? They can't just start another song after they're done. Right. And that, that definitely plays into it, but it's like, you know, computerizing things in a way that helps you perform better. Why would you not want to take advantage of that? Right. Yep. Precisely. It just, there, there are so many things that are timed out, especially when you bring larger production elements into it, like pyrotechnics. And, you know, that becomes a safety issue. Like, people love it. Like, there's fire on stage. It's the coolest thing ever. And it brings so much to the... It brings so much to the performance because it just makes that suspense, that uh, intensity that much more mm-hmm. because there's actual fire on stage. Yeah. But if you time that incorrectly, you turn into a fucking charred hot dog and you're done. Yeah. You can't play anymore. And that's like, that's it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You know, it's very real. I don't yeah. think a lot of people really consider that. When I was watching Avenged Sevenfold and they had their big fireballs and stuff going off, you could feel the heat. Granted, mm-hmm. I was in the pit. So, you know, you're really close. Mm-hmm. But at that point in time, I didn't even think about what are the band people feeling? Because if we're feeling the heat from out here, that's got to be really hot at their backs, you know, yeah. or even their their fronts or whatever. I don't know. You got to give it to people who can go off of different pyrotechnics like that and just play, you know, just it, it's, it'd be something I would have to get used to. That's true. And uh, different production elements like that from the stage perspective, it adds to, um, the amount of intensity, especially because you have all of the the lighting on you that nobody else is experiencing, and it can be overwhelmingly warm. So you're sweating. Yes. And then the intensity that you're physically putting into a performance to add to the music, you know, your body's working, your heart's pumping, and you're sweating because of that too. Then, you know, pyrotechnics come off and you singe some fucking eyebrow 
hair off because you're a little bit too far on stage right or stage left or wherever. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's a lot. And for somebody to criticize the fact that you have a laptop backstage controlling a lot of that, <laughs> it's just right. ridiculous. Right. And it's you know. like, it's, it's safer that way, obviously. Because mm-hmm. you know what's going to happen is going to happen on, on cue and on point because it's designed that way. So... On that note, thank you guys for listening. Um, we appreciate you very much. So make sure you, uh, you know, like and subscribe and check out uh, different resources we have around TikTok. So we'll put a link in that in the description. And yeah, appreciate you guys listening. Until next time, I'm Cody. And I'm Andrew. We'll see you guys next time. So then.